Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 150, Women's Groups Working for a Better Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. Nikki and I have a short week this week, and we didn't have time to put together a brand new episode. Instead, I'm going to share two classic stories about times in Boston history when women's volunteer organizations had a big impact on Boston. First, we'll talk about the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association, whose members introduced the concept of a playground to the American public in late 19th century Boston. Then we'll fast forward a few decades to the 19-teens, when the Women's Municipal League sponsored Boston's first, and so far only, Rat Day. Both these projects made valuable contributions to Boston's quality of life, and they happened at a time when society didn't generally approve of women's work outside the home. But before we talk about women's groups making Boston better, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a five-part series published by food and wine blogger Richard Offrey on his site The Passionate Foodie. The whole series starts as an attempt to identify the first Chinese restaurant in Boston. He convincingly debunks the myth, which we repeated in our episode about the Great Chinatown Raid, that the Hong Far Lo restaurant, established in 1879, was the first one. In order to get to the bottom of which restaurant might have been the first, Offrey researched and wrote an admirable overview of the earliest Chinese-American immigrants to call Boston their home. He begins with the story of a teenaged clerk for a Hong Kong tea company who was forced to be a cabin boy on a New England merchant ship in 1840, settled in Boston, and eventually became a wealthy tea merchant in his own right. Then he traces several generations of Chinese-American laborers and merchants from the 1840s to the founding of Boston's Chinatown in the 1870s. He talks about the many types of businesses that were established early in Chinatown's history, then finally identifies the first contemporaneous reference to a Chinese restaurant in the Boston Globe in 1887. The story doesn't end there, however. That's just the first of the five parts. The passionate foodie continues tracing the culinary history of restaurants in Boston's Chinatown for another 65 years. The second article talks about the early 20th century and the rampant anti-Chinese bigotry in Boston and around the country at that time. The third installment covers Prohibition, the Depression, and the Second World War. The fourth part focuses on an entrepreneur named Ruby Fu, and the final installment takes the story right up to the mid-1950s. It's a well-researched series, focusing on a slice of Boston history that's often overlooked, and it was put together by an amateur historian on the trail of culinary history. We'll have a link to all five parts in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring Museum Day, an annual celebration sponsored by Smithsonian Magazine. Every year, participating museums agree to provide free tickets for one day to you and a guest if you register for them through the Museum Day website. This year, Museum Day falls on Saturday, September 21st, and there are literally dozens of participating partners in the Boston area. In Boston, you have the USS Constitution Museum, the Gibson House, the MFA, and many more. Nearby, there's the JFK Birthplace in Brookline, the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology in Cambridge, the Quincy Homestead in Quincy, and the Eustace Estate in Milton. Further afield, there are museums to choose from in Newton, Watertown, Waltham, Wellesley, and many more. Check out the show notes for a link to the Museum Day page, then enter your zip code and see what pops up near you. 
Just be sure to choose wisely. You can only get one museum day pass per email address. Before I get on with the show, I just want to pause for a moment and say how mind-blowing it is to be recording episode 150. When we started the show, it seemed wildly over-optimistic to give the URL of the show notes as hubhistory.com slash 001. Who was I kidding to think I would ever need three digits when the vast majority of podcasts fade out before reaching episode 10? Well, here we are at 150. Next month, we'll celebrate our third anniversary on the air, which is very exciting. Over the past 150 episodes, we've gotten better at researching, writing, and recording, so I think the show's at a different level now than it was when we started out. With the help of our Patreon sponsors, we hope to keep growing and improving the show over the next 150 episodes. If you already sponsor the show, thank you. If you'd like to sponsor the show, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on Sponsor Us. Thanks again to everybody who helps us make Hub History. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Back in episode 111, we talked about a new revolution in play that was born in Boston in the late 19th century. In an era when urban children had few spaces to play in, except the alleys and courtyards around their tenements, and child labor meant that many kids had no opportunities to play at all, an immigrant doctor inspired a Boston women's group to take up the topic of play. From its humble beginnings in a single North End sandpit, the playground movement grew to a quasi-scientific pursuit until it was finally adopted as a national goal. By the early 20th century, safe playgrounds with structured, supervised play were seen as vital to children's moral and educational development. This week's topic was inspired by a listener named Joni, who tweeted at us a few weeks ago with a question. At Hub History, have you ever heard about the 1886 playground or sandpit mentioned in the discussion below? Any idea where it may have been? Then Joni's tweet linked to a discussion on the Ask a Historian subreddit where people were discussing the history of children's playgrounds. One comment said, The first playgrounds were in Berlin and were piles of sand in public parks, inspired by Froebel's nation of gardens for children to explore. A group of women philanthropists took the idea from Germany and had a pile of sand set up in a Boston neighborhood in 1885. Now, we didn't know where the sand pile was, and in fact, I'd never heard of the sand pile, but we started digging. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) Before long, we were up to our necks in the history of the playground movement in America. Though, as an early playground activist wrote, playgrounds are now so universal, natural, inevitable, that it seems as if there never could have been a beginning to them any more than to perpetual motion. It actually turns out that the origin of the playground movement is right here in Boston. The story of how Boston invented playgrounds has to begin with Dr. Marie Zachrzewska, who was born and raised in Berlin, Germany, of a Polish family. As a little girl, Marie had been whip-smart, with teachers consistently praising her performance in school. However, as a girl with a very traditional father in mid-19th century Europe, she was forced to withdraw from school at age 13. Her mother eventually found herself working as a midwife, and Marie would assist her in cases taking meticulous notes and reading any medical texts she could get her hands on. As she entered her 20s, she pressed forward through multiple rejections until she was finally accepted into a midwife training program at the Royal Charity Hospital of Berlin. She was their youngest student, and she appeared to be brilliant, 
graduating at the head of her class. At just 22 years old, she was appointed to a professorship and made director of the hospital's midwife training program. However, her male colleagues resented her, and she was forced out after just a few months. Disappointed and hoping to find a place with more opportunities for women, Marie moved to the U.S. in 1853. Spoiler alert, America in 1853 wasn't exactly full of opportunities either. Nevertheless, she persisted, enrolling in medical school at Case Western Reserve University, one of the few physician training programs that would accept women at that time. There, she taught herself English in the evenings while learning medicine during the day, eventually graduating in 1856. Marie would now fondly be known as Dr. Zock. An article published by the Jamaica Plain Historical Society describes how Dr. Zock after a short stint in New York, ended up putting down roots in Boston. Her contacts in Boston led to an appointment in 1859 as Professor of Obstetrics at the New England Female Medical College, which had been founded in 1848 as the first medical college for women in the world. Side note, longtime listeners will recognize the New England Female Medical College as the alma mater of Dr. Rebecca Davis Lee Crumpler, America's first black woman physician. Check out episode 18 for more on her. The article continues. Dr. Zakshrevska's dream was to open the medical profession to women. But the promises of the college were not fulfilled. Her attempts to change it from a midwife training school to a mainstream medical school with practical clinical training were opposed by the owner and trustees. Dr. Zock resigned and began work to found the New England Hospital for Women and Children, a center where women physicians would treat women patients. Marie Zakshrevska's hospital opened in 1862 at 60 Pleasant Street in Boston as a training hospital of the highest possible standards that would allow women to enter the best medical colleges in the world. Irregular physicians such as homeopaths, phrenologists, and magnetists were not allowed to associate with the institution. It was the only hospital in Boston to provide obstetrics, gynecology, and pediatrics, as well as a complete medical ward and surgical wards. Dr. Zock's experience in science and sanitary conditions made the hospital a leader in preventing contagious fevers and assured the success of the enterprise. In the 1870s, the hospital moved to a shady hilltop overlooking Columbus Avenue in Roxbury, where it is known today as the Dimmick Community Health Center. Dr. Zock apparently traveled widely to study medical techniques and public health practices in the major cities of the world. And in a 1922 history of the American play movement, Clarence Rainwater cites one of these trips as the inspiration for an experiment in play. The one provision for play which has been most frequently designated as the origin of the movement is the establishment of sand gardens in Boston. Dr. Marie Zakshrevska, while visiting in Berlin during the summer in 1885, observed heaps of sand in the public parks in which the children of both the rich and the poor were permitted to play, under supervision of the police. As a result of her report by letter to Mrs. Kate Gannett Wells, chairman of the Executive Committee of the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association, a large heap of sand was placed in the yards of the Parmenter Street Chapel and the West End Nursery. Kate Gannett Wells, in turn, 
wrote in the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association's 1885 Annual Report, Last summer, at the suggestion of Dr. Marie Zakrzewska, and in accordance with the plan in Berlin which has proved so useful to children, a large heap of sand was placed in the yard attached to the Parmenter Street Chapel. An average of 15 children connected with the chapel came there three days a week, through July and August, and, under the guidance of Mrs. Gamble, dug in the sand with their little wooden shovels and made countless sand pies, which were remade the next day with undismayed alacrity. They sang their songs and marched in their small processions, and, when weary, were gathered in the motherly arms of the matron. Their plays were almost as much of a delight as a picnic— Better in a hygienic point of view, for they had the air, the sun, the sand, the fun, and no cake. The same plan was tried at the West End Nursery, but as the children there were hardly two years old, they cared little for it. Your committee hope, however, that the success of the experiment in Parmenter Street may have sufficiently demonstrated the usefulness of the sand garden to secure its adoption elsewhere. Playing in the dirt is the royalty of childhood but poverty infringes upon the right, especially at the North End. For children who had not inherited that royalty, childhood might hold little time to play, or none at all. Children might be expected to help with the housework or farm work, and when they were a little older, they might be expected to go to work work. In his study of the play movement, Clarence Rainwater commented that opportunities for play were actually declining in the mid-19th century, especially for city kids. In the cities, where a consciousness of the social situation first arose, the behavior of children, youths, and adults during their leisure hours and holidays frequently became delinquent conduct, play became crime, while leisure pursuits became commercialized to an extent without precedent. The women of the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association, which we'll refer to as the MEHA, also believed that city kids were running wild in the streets. They wrote that their experiment sand garden was a favorable alternative for the amusement of the younger children of the poorer classes, who ordinarily play in the streets, where they are exposed to accidents and to unfavorable moral influences. Children had, of course, found ways to play for as long as children had existed. Early in our history, Boston Common was home to children's games, alongside grazing cattle and sheep. However, for most kids, the only spaces available for play were the courtyards of their tenement houses or the streets and alleyways outside. Indeed, the photo collection at the Boston Public Library reveals pictures of young children in the 19th and early 20th centuries playing on shipwrecks along the harbor, building forts out of trash in squalid alleys, petting stray dogs, and skipping across the frigid waters of Boston Harbor by hopping from one free-floating ice cake to another, none of which seem like safe or constructive activities. Free-range kids were the norm back then but it came at the price of injury, or worse, from accidents. And the worst-case scenario played out in the 1870s, when the teenage serial killer Jesse Pomeroy began torturing and murdering unsupervised young children in Boston. You can hear more about him in episode 55. The innovation of the playground was not only providing space for play, in fact, Brookline had appropriated land for children's play by 1872, 
but also providing structured activities, equipment, and supervision. The 1887 MEHA Annual Report explains how the structure and supervision of the new playgrounds were an improvement over the free play that children were used to. Though but a poor compensation for fields and flowers, sand gardens are full of enjoyment to the children who, without them, would have neither sand nor earth for dirt pies and miniature forts. That the joys of our playgrounds rival those of green fields, or that our sand heaps are a fitting substitute for the wide sea beach, we do not claim. But we are an enthusiastic committee and believe in our plan as a saving force for the children. As for many hours during the hot, sultry months, 400 children were kept away from the associations of the gutters and the wharves, were made happy, and taught something of honesty, unselfishness, and gentle manners. In fact, 1887 marked a major expansion of Boston's nascent playgrounds. From a single sand pile in 1884 to three sand gardens in 1885, the movement had now expanded to a total of 10 play spaces for children in 1887. In some of these spaces, the activities available to stimulate young minds went well beyond the sand piles that Kate Gannett Wells had called the royalty of childhood. The expanded mission prompted a name change for the supervising MEHA committee. The Committee on Playgrounds can report much pleasure and many gentle influences granted to the little children of the poor during the eight weeks when the schools were closed. Seven schoolyards situated in the neighborhoods where children swarm were open for three hours on four fair days of each week. A kindly matron was ready to welcome the children and offered them sand heaps and shovels, balls, tops, skipping ropes, reins, beanbags, building blocks, flags to march under, and transparent slates to draw upon. Besides these seven yards, which are dignified by the name of playgrounds, there were three sand gardens where only sand and shovels were furnished. Before you start entertaining visions of the little angels of days gone by and bemoaning the manners and behavior of kids these days, it should be pointed out that not everything was sunshine and puppy dogs in the 1887 MEHA report. At the Baldwin schoolyard, Chardon Court, the children were of the most untamable material and refused to be in the least appreciative when the matron spoke of the kindness of the women who had arranged the playgrounds. Pooh, they're paid for it, one boy remarked. Oh no, they do it to give you a good time. Well, they are fools then, was his comment. Roxbury Street Schoolyard was a difficult place. On the first day, nothing but the presence of a police officer quieted the older boys who were bent on mischief. That was soon over, however, and Mrs. Edson, the matron, did good work. Success breeds success, and with these reports of the progress made by the playground committee, philanthropists were making significant cash contributions, while a sand and gravel company provided raw materials free of charge, and a furniture company donated chairs for the supervising playground matrons. With an influx of funds, the number of playgrounds in Boston continued to increase rapidly over the coming years. The 1889 report for the committee noted the expansions and plans for the upcoming year. They included a note about an experiment with an indoor playground for days with bad weather, and a plan for the coming year to introduce a purpose-built playground, which wouldn't be dependent on a courtyard at a settlement house or access to a schoolyard. 
The playground report for 1889 is merely the report for 1888 written large. There were 11 playgrounds instead of seven. There were 1,000 instead of 400 children. There was double the number of toys, twice the amount of sand, and more than twice as many amusing and pathetic incidents. During the winter, fortune favored our committee. First, in the successful establishment of a playroom at Chief Street. Second, in inducing the city government to set aside a lot of land on Fellow Street at the South End as a playground, and to appropriate $1,000 to grade and grass it. Next year, we hope to have there our first open playground. Up to the present time, we have been sheltered by the protecting walls of the schoolyards, which is, by turns, an advantage and a disadvantage. The growing success of playgrounds made the city of Boston sit up and take notice. And in that same year, the Department of Parks and Recreation appropriated $1,000 for playground development. One of the first was an open-air gymnasium along the banks of the Charles River. It was designed by landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, with input from a Professor Dudley Sargent at Harvard. And it was described by Olmsted historian Cynthia Zychewski as the first scientifically designed and administered open-air gymnasium to be operated free of charge in a public park. It was built on a stretch of the newly created land along the Charles River between Leverett Street and Cambridge Street, or today, from the old Charles River Dam to Longfellow Bridge. Playground activist Clarence Rainwater described how this playground was fenced, parked, equipped with swings, ladders, seesaws, a one-fifth mile running track, a sand garden, and provided with wading, rowing, and bathing facilities, all free to the public. At first, it was only open to men and older boys, but starting in 1891, a similar gymnasium opened on the far end of the Charles Bank that was open to women and girls. It was the first open-air gymnasium for girls in the world. A 1909 article in the Journal of Education hailed the addition of girls' facilities at Charles Bank. It is truly a picnic spot on its grassy circle, a running track for girl athletes, a training ground for girl gymnasts, a rotunda for motherly gossip, and a shelter for babies. A full generation has grown up there that now in turn sends its little ones to its shade. Long live Charles Bank, which, best of all, is now only one of many admirably equipped playgrounds under the wise control of the Park Commission and its superintendent, Mr. John A. Pettigrew, who, better than most men, knows how to unite sympathy and discipline, enthusiasm and wisdom, and love for the beautiful in nature with practical utility. In 1890, 30 acres were set aside as a playstead at Franklin Park. And then in 1894, Franklin Field was opened for rowdy games and active play among older children that wasn't seen as appropriate for the more reflective attitude of Franklin Park. These large and generous playgrounds were a start, but they weren't accessible by all children in all parts of the city. A new mayor would set out to change that in 1898. Josiah Quincy was elected mayor of Boston in 1896. He was the sixth prominent Bostonian to carry the name Josiah Quincy, and the third Josiah Quincy to take office as the mayor. The centerpiece of his administration was massive spending on public works projects. A 1903 article in the New England Magazine by Joseph Lee 
now considered one of the founders of the American playground movement, lays out how Mayor Quincy set out to create playgrounds for all children. But a few big fields are not enough. When Josiah Quincy was mayor, he saw that the great omission in our playground system was still the playground itself, and he set to work in a characteristically radical way to remove this deficiency. Through his efforts, a bill was passed by the legislature in 1898, providing that a sum not greater than half a million dollars could be spent by the park commissioners at the rate of not over 200000 a year in creating a system of playgrounds for the city. This money has been honestly, skillfully, and judiciously expended. And now, in addition to our big suburban fields and the playground portion of our 17th century common, we have some 22 local playgrounds in different parts of the city, 170 acres in all. With this legislation, the Commonwealth would join the Playground Committee and the Boston Parks Department in funding and operating playgrounds. They were joined in 1899 by the Boston Public Schools, who allocated $3,000 for year-round playgrounds. With three governmental agencies involved in playgrounds, it was time for the Playground Committee to reevaluate their role. Reflecting on these changes a decade later, Playground pioneer Kate Gannett Wells wrote in the Journal of Education, The so-called psychological moment had arrived for Miss Tower and her committee, either to form a large playground association or to put their work under the sole direction and support of the school committee. It had become rather difficult for the volunteers in the committee to arrange details of management. How much should each contribute? When a yard was just right for playground purposes, repairs on its schoolhouse often prevented its use. Plans could neither be made long ahead nor permanent, as the committee was a constantly changing body. Therefore, as the idea of the playgrounds had at least been permanently accepted, Miss Tower and her committee handed over to the school committee the work they had initiated and maintained. Playgrounds have become a matter of even legislative authority, but no legislature ever forecast its action from three small sand heaps. The women of the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association were out of the playground business, but they could take satisfaction in knowing that their efforts had inspired imitators in cities around the country. A 1925 article in the Journal of the Playground and Recreation Association of America notes, In Philadelphia in 1893, two summer playgrounds were started by philanthropic people. In 1895, the city council opened available schoolyards and appropriated $1,000 toward their maintenance. This amount was soon increased to $3,000. Sand gardens were started in Providence by the Children's Kindergarten Association in 1894. Other cities followed rapidly. In 1898, the New York School Committee took over the vacation schools, establishing 20 school playgrounds. In 1899, Brooklyn and Baltimore started their playgrounds. Cleveland, Minneapolis, and Denver had sand gardens in 1898. The first recreation pier in New York was opened in 1897. Philadelphia opened a play pier in 1898. Now that playgrounds were being opened around the country, and now that Boston's women had given up administering the movement they had created, it was time for the men to step in and claim credit. In 1900, Cabot heir Joseph Lee bought a vacant lot on Columbus Ave and opened it as a model playground. He published frequently on the topics of play and playgrounds, becoming known as the Grandfather of Play, or 
the father of the American playground, which is all well and good, except that he had taken up this subject a decade and a half after Boston's women had pioneered it. In 1906, Joseph Lee of Boston and Jane Addams of Hull House in Chicago were named as honorary vice presidents of the newly formed Playground Association of America. At a meeting held on April 12th at a YMCA in Washington, D.C., directors of agencies that ran playgrounds in 18 different cities and towns formed this new organization to promote the playground movement across the nation. One of their core principles was that inasmuch as play under proper conditions is essential to the health and the physical, social, and moral well-being of the child, playgrounds are a necessity for all children as much as schools. Playgrounds during this era offered far more activities than just digging in the sand or climbing on a jungle gym. With the concept of structured, supervised play came team sports, pageants, parades, dressmaking and drawing classes, and all types of physical training. For somebody like Clarence Rainwater, play was a comprehensive term. He said, It comprises more than a description of sand gardens or playgrounds for children, since the term play is used to embrace most of the activities occurring in social and community centers, in community music, drama and pageantry, and in community service and organization. The focus on drama and pageantry is evident in a pageant of the perfect city, produced in Boston by playground movement veterans in 1909. It was meant to showcase the ideals of a perfect modern metropolis, and to position Boston as the perfect illustration of these ideals. According to Playground magazine, it depicted the development of the city as the home of man from the earliest conjectural days of the caveman, through the period of Indian life and the colonial times, to the present, and on into the future, symbolically suggesting the conditions that Boston 1915 is striving to create, the pageant of the perfect city. The venue for this pageant was the original Museum of Fine Arts building in Copley Square, and the sponsor was the Boston 1915 movement. Our current leadership in Boston has a plan for the future called Boston 2030, which looks ahead to the 400th anniversary of our city's founding and imagines improvements in housing, transit, walkability, technology, and other livability measures. Boston 1915 was the early 20th century equivalent, when 1915 was the future coming up on the horizon. The Massachusetts State Library describes the movement. In 1909, a special event with the stated purpose of imagining the future to help make Boston a better place by 1915 was held at the Old Art Museum in Copley Square, from November 1st to the 27th. For a 25-cent admission fee to enter the 1915 Boston Exposition, Bostonians of 1909 could see exhibits on and hear lectures about improving life in Boston, on topics ranging from public health to transportation. This idealized, forward-looking future of 1915 was the work of the Boston 1915 movement, a group of prominent business leaders and citizens that came together in 1909 to work for the betterment of the city of Boston. The movement established their own progressive thinking magazine called New Boston, a chronicle of progress in developing a greater and finer city under the auspices of the Boston 1915 movement. And they planned the exposition, modeled on the Columbian World Exposition held in Chicago in 1883, 
to introduce their city as it is to be. It was in service to these goals that the pageant of the perfect city was produced. And if we hadn't researched the playground movement, we may have never discovered this delightfully weird dramatization. The play featured over 1,500 performers and was organized into five acts, with the first three taking the audience through a tour of Boston during prehistoric times, then through Native American dominance to the coming of English settlers. As you might guess, the American imagination in 1909 produced a result that we would consider to be incredibly racist and paternalistic by our modern standards. Finally, in the fourth act, the audience was introduced to modern Boston. Accompanied by the stirring music of Elgar's pomp and circumstance, in splendid procession, Boston came forth, attended by the 30 neighboring cities and towns in the metropolitan district. She was impersonated by a woman with white hair, but in the prime of life. The conception was stately and inspiring. Robed in blue, wearing on her head the gold dome of the state house, her ample train of blue and green gauze carried by seven young girls, representing the seven districts of the city of Boston, she stood on a slightly elevated dais, her districts disposing themselves around her in their relative geographical position, the folds of her blue-green train representing the waters of Boston Harbor. On either side of her were grouped the neighboring cities, each appropriately robed and bearing some symbol or insignia of her town. Lynn, for instance, as industry, carried a large cogwheel as a shield. Chelsea, recovering from her disastrous fire, wore the phoenix on her head as a crest. Canton carried the copper bells cast by Paul Revere, and Quincy, in granite-colored robes, carried the anchor to represent the shipbuilding industry. It was a splendid and imposing spectacle, instinctively calling forth the admiration of the stranger and the local pride of those who reside in the metropolitan district. The civic question for every citizen in this personified characterization of Boston and her neighbors was, is it true? Are these cities thus resplendent in their nobility and worth? Or can they be? Shall they be? And the answer varies according exactly to the local patriotism and civic determination of which the individual citizen is capable. The Fifth Act introduced a vision for Boston in the future, and among the goals for future Boston was increased playgrounds. This is one of the few predictions to actually come true. A 1948 Boston Planning Department report notes that Boston by that time had 104 playgrounds totaling over 650 acres, which was a notable accomplishment. The same report, however, notes that in some of the neighborhoods with the most densely packed populations and the most children per household, there were actually fewer playgrounds per square mile and per capita than in outlying areas. The report identifies increasing the number of playgrounds and the more equitable distribution of playgrounds for the future as key goals for the coming decades. Even today, some of the same goals persist. While there may be less focus on structured play these days, there is still a focus on using playgrounds to promote physical fitness. In our own neighborhood, the Parks Department rebuilt our local playground about three years ago, adding a spray deck, improving the play structures and basketball and tennis courts, and building in fitness equipment like ellipticals and pull-up bars. Much as increasing the number of playgrounds was a goal for the Boston 1915 movement, increasing open space 
is the goal for the Imagine Boston 2030 project, proving that when it comes to parks and playgrounds, the more things change, the more they stay the same. A few years after the playground movement got started in Boston, a civic organization called the Women's Municipal League decided to tackle Boston's perennial rat problem. The Women's Municipal League was made up of mostly middle and upper class women at a time when most women didn't work outside the home. In 1915, they declared war on rats. Over the next few years, the group published literature on eradicating rats, carried out an extensive education campaign, and in 1917 hosted a citywide Rat Day with cash prizes for the citizens who killed the most rats. With the city's ongoing rat problem back in the news this summer, this story from Episode 72 remains a surprisingly relevant topic. On February 13, 1917, a man who newspapers would identify as Mr. B. Rimkus walked into a city-owned yard in Brighton and presented an official from the Boston Sanitation Department with a sack containing 282 dead rats. In return, he got a bounty of $150, which would be the equivalent of about $3,200 in today's money. Mr. B. Rimkus was the champion rat killer of Boston. But before we talk about Mr. B. Rimkus, let's start at the beginning. Way back at the very beginning. The black rat likely evolved in Southeast Asia between 1 and 2 million years ago, then colonized South and Central Asia. When ancient Rome began trading with India for spices, Rattus Rattus, the black rat, hopped on a ride on one of their caravans and made its way to Europe. Rats of all kinds are opportunistic omnivores, eating almost anything that can feed a person, pig, cow, or goat. They quickly flourished in the Roman world, with booming populations stuffing themselves on the waste of Roman farms and cities. The black rat arrived in the British Isles by the first century CE, and flourished there for the next millennia and a half. Eventually, however, a new competitor appeared on the field. The brown rat, or Rattus Novegicus, was first reported in Europe in the mid-1500s. A Boston Magazine article published last month includes a description of the rise of Rattus Novegicus. The brown rat's origin story begins somewhere near Mongolia about two million years ago, long before the dawn of human history. Once Homo sapiens entered the picture, wherever people went, rats followed, eating their debris and garbage along the way. They trailed nomadic shepherds on the grain road through Central Asia and followed the merchants of the Silk Road west toward Europe. They even hitched a ride to the New World as stowaways on ships carrying early European immigrants. The black rat had a head start, but the brown rat had soon supplanted it in Great Britain. Brown rats were better evolved for the cold, and they were larger and more aggressive than black rats. In addition, the changing nature of human settlements in England favored the brown rat. Black rats evolved as arboreal, tree-dwelling creatures. This served them well when European dwellings were primarily made of wood with thatched roofs. As more buildings switched over to brick and masonry with tiled roofs, the advantage switched to brown rats. They had evolved as burrowers and naturally chose damp soils along riverbanks to make their dens. 
This behavior transferred easily to damp privies, sewers, and basements, and the brown rat was soon the king vermin of the British Isles. The same transition happened in the New World in general, and in Boston in particular. The black rat arrived on our shores with the first European settlers. Any ship from Europe carrying livestock, food stores, or even just the rations to feed the sailors aboard probably had ratus ratus hiding somewhere below decks. After all, black rats are sometimes also called ship rats. Just over a century later, ratus norvegicus followed them. Boston Magazine notes, The first reports of brown rats in the American colonies date to 1775, and the animals quickly became regular residents in the filthy, crowded industrial centers such as Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. They weren't the first rat species on the scene. Ratus ratus, the smaller black rat, historically loathed as a transmitter of bubonic plague, had arrived more than a century earlier. But the larger and more aggressive brown rat, better suited for cold winters, easily bullied the black rat out of town and before long claimed the Northeast as its own. Beneath Boston today is a veritable graveyard of colonial-era rats, says city archaeologist Joe Bagley, who's found evidence of rat tunnels on Paul Revere's property and once even unearthed the skeleton of a rat in the North End that died next to a 19th-century Catholic miraculous medal. Nothing, however, can compare with the grisly discovery Bagley's team made in a garden at the Old North Church in August 2016. They were digging six feet below ground near a cistern when the first rat skull surfaced followed in quick succession by a second, a third, and a fourth. We couldn't quite figure out what was going on, says Liz Quinlan, a zooarchaeologist who was on site that day. We were essentially pulling out buckets of rats. By the end of the project, they had removed 747 rat bones, which is insane, she assures us. While Quinlan suspects that the rats drowned in the latter half of the 19th century, she can't yet say if they all perished at the same time. The archaeological evidence shows how firmly established the brown rat was in Boston by the end of the 19th century. The beginning of the 20th century saw the rise of a new force, one that seems like a surprising opponent for the scourge of the rat. The website Mass Moments describes this unlikely team of heroes. In 1908, a group of well-to-do Boston women formed the Boston Women's Municipal League to promote civic betterment. According to the League's historian, the founders believed that housekeeping of a great city was women's work. It was their province to see that the city was kept clean, as it was also their province to see that their own homes were clean. So obviously, the garbage and ashes should be promptly and scientifically removed from the streets and alleys, the markets freed from dirt and dust and flies, and the air cleaned from soot and smoke. The BWML's founders were drawn from the city's most established families. The members were the wives and daughters of businessmen, ministers, lawyers, professors, and doctors. Within a short time, the League had a membership of over 2,000. Their dues-funded studies and programs, usually carried out by paid professionals. However, volunteer committee women managed many of the League's activities. Women may not have been able to vote at the time, but the prominent women of the Municipal League were influential in public affairs in the city nonetheless, as expressed in their 1917 mission statement. The object of the League is to educate and organize among the women of Boston and the surrounding communities an intelligent, 
representative public opinion which will exert its influence in the public service. With this mission of public service led by women, the Women's Municipal League soon landed on the eradication of rats as a worthy project for their efforts. They researched the topic of rat extermination and abatement so heavily that they soon became some of the nation's foremost experts. They were called upon to evaluate and endorse various extermination methods, and they spread the slogan, If we have to go to New York for our hats, New York comes to Boston to ask about rats. A card that members of the Women's Municipal League circulated that tried to quantify the dangers posed by rats said, There are about 750,000 rats in Boston. It costs at least one half cent per day, or $1.82 per year, to keep each rat. Boston is paying some $1,355,000 a year for rats. Can we afford such an amount to support vermin that bring us trichinosis, bubonic plague, and possibly infantile paralysis? Help us to rout the rat. They published literature about rats and rat abatement and sent it to every library in the country, to municipalities in Canada and Europe, and in response to inquiries from Australia, Brazil, India, and Russia. Mayor James Michael Curley and the city's official rat catcher, Edward J. Kennedy, not Senator Ted Kennedy, endorsed their efforts. There have been outbreaks of bubonic plague in Cuba and in Puerto Rico, then in San Francisco in 1910, and in New Orleans in 1914. Fear of the plague drove the Women's Municipal League to take up the issue of rat abatement. While the now mostly extinct Ratus ratus had been a better host for plague-carrying fleas, Ratus norvegicus still posed a plague threat. Building on earlier public health efforts to eradicate disease-carrying flies, the BWML formed subcommittees to educate the public about the threats posed by rats and means of controlling their population. In 1915, the Women's Municipal League sponsored a 10-day-long rat cleanup, in which they hired unemployed men as temporary exterminators and opened a temporary rat information office on Boylston Street in the Back Bay. The Boston Evening Transcript reported, Nearly 900 visitors have passed in and out, and it has been an important factor in this campaign, which is an economic measure as well as one bearing upon the health of the community. By 1916, the Women's Municipal League was making rat abatement one of the primary goals of their organization, saying, This committee, thinking the time had arrived for active measures against the horde of rats which infest the city, inaugurated a campaign for their extermination under the management of Mrs. Albert T. Leatherby. Believing that an earnest effort to reduce a pest which not only endangers the health of the community, but which threatens its economic welfare and commercial interests as well, would find financial support and active cooperation among the businessmen of the city, it was planned to form cooperative rat clubs throughout the various districts of Boston. These clubs were to be used as centers for the dissemination of knowledge regarding the habits of rats, their danger to health and life, and their powers of destruction. Meetings were to be held at which practical rat catchers would give instructions as to the proper methods for trapping, hunting, and poisoning rats, and experts would discuss the means by which property could be protected against them. Building on these successes, the BWML decided to hold a huge rat day in February of 1917. 
They would offer large cash prizes to the man, woman, or child who could bring in the most dead rats. They had heard about a recent effort in London that brought in so many thousands of dead rats that their tiny gray pelts were used in new fashion accessories in London department stores. They hoped to make a similar dent in the rat population in Boston, while at the same time educating the public about the dangers of rats and promoting their other rat-fighting efforts. An article from the Royal College of Surgeons describes the major promotional push the BWML put together. With support from the Boston Health Department, local newspapers, trade journals, and religious magazines, the campaign aimed to reach the widest number of people possible. Flyers were distributed in a variety of languages, and a thousand copies of the striking two-colored poster were displayed throughout the city including the platforms of Boston Elevated Railway Stations. Window displays were created in pharmacies, hardware and grocer shops, with a thousand cards distributed by Boy Scouts. Even the United Cigar Stores Company placed one in each of their stores. The committee commissioned the National Motion Pictures Company to produce an educational film titled The Rat Menace. It was favorably received at a private viewing attended by doctors, federal quarantine officers, and city department members. Later, a series of educational slides were shown in local cinemas over five weeks, drip-feeding information to the public. Flyers went up around the city in English, Italian, Polish, and Hebrew. Signs in the windows of grocers, hardware stores, and druggists screamed, Kill your rats! There are 2 million or more rats in Boston, causing annual damages of $70 million and jeopardizing the lives, property, and prosperity of our city. The event was so widely publicized that the National Association of Retail Druggists Journal carried a brief news article when Rat Day had to be postponed by a day. The mayor of Boston was a great admirer of Abraham Lincoln, and he had asked the Women's Municipal League to move Rat Day so it wouldn't conflict with Lincoln's birthday. Boston's official Rat Day, a movement in which druggists are considerably interested, has been set forward from February 12th to February 13th. If the campaign arouses as widespread interest as is now indicated, druggists throughout this section ought to find a heavy demand for rat poison. We mentioned the bounty that the Women's Municipal League was planning to pay to Boston's top rat killer. However, that wasn't the only thing happening on Rat Day in 1917. The memo that the chairwoman of the Women's Municipal League rat campaign sent to Mayor James Michael Curley reveals the many activities they had planned and the logistics that went into Rat Day. We therefore request of His Honor the Mayor the following assistance that he shall proclaim a rat exterminating period and announce a day between the specified hours of which dead rats shall be brought to certain appointed stations. We would request that ten such be named, one each for the districts of East Boston, Charlestown, North End, West End, Back Bay, South End, Roxbury, Dorchester, South Boston, and Brighton. Such a proclamation would be in line with that annually made by the governor of Indiana, in compliance with the state statutes. That he shall order the sanitary department to provide proper receptacles for these carcasses and dispose of the same, and that one man shall be provided at each station to receive and care for said carcasses. 
that he shall allow the circulation of our anti-rat circulars throughout city departments and encourage the heads of such departments to see that they are given to employees. That he shall allow the placing of posters about city property, such as the yards of the various public works departments, municipal buildings, etc. That he shall allow the free use of municipal buildings for anti-rat meetings. Recommend to the school committee that it allow the league's anti-rat circulars to be circulated among the pupils of the public schools to take home to their families, as was so successfully done with such excellent results in San Francisco. That he shall recommend to the city council the passage of anti-rat ordinances, similar to those in force in New Orleans and other cities which have taken such action, but adaptable to the peculiar local conditions here. Having at the beginning of our campaign received the commendation and interest of his honor, we feel that he will give the above suggestions his distinguished consideration. This document signed, B. Leatherby, Mrs. Arthur T. Leatherby, Manager, Rat Campaign. One note about that. All the women we could find attached to documents regarding Rat Day are identified by their husbands' names. It was the custom of the time, and we just aren't good enough researchers to uncover their real names. That initial B is as close as we came to finding one of these distinguished women's actual names. With the exception of asking to move Rat Day away from Lincoln's birthday, Mayor Curley seems to have given the League everything they wanted. While there was an information campaign and an attempt to pass new legislation, the media mostly focused on the rat-killing contest. There were chances to win $50 in each of the 10 districts and an additional $100 bonus for the overall rat-killing champion. The Boston Sunday Post reported on the winner and his methods. B. Rimkis is champ rat-catcher of Boston. B. Rimkis is a firm believer in the asservation that any man who can do something a little better than someone else can is on the road to wealth. Often in our younger days, we were told that the world would wear a trail to any man's door, no matter at what remote location he dwelt, if he could make a better rat trap than anyone else. Well, Rimkis doesn't specialize in rat traps, but he knows how to use one. For Rimkus is the champion rat catcher of Boston. If we are to believe the old tale, the Pied Piper failed to collect for the job. But Rimkus did collect to the tune of 150 cold hard dollars, coin of the realm, simply because on our recent rat day, he delivered 282 deceased rats to the city yard. He won the first prize of $100 offered by the Women's Municipal League and, in addition, pulled down a special prize of $50. How did he do it? Traps, he answered. Some of the kind that catch them around the neck, some of the big wire ones that catch them alive. What do you use for the bait? That's the secret, answered the rat catcher, and turned his back on the newspaper man. The League went out of their way to note that the winner of the contest was not a native English speaker, and he only knew of the contest because he had seen one of their Polish-language flyers. The American public is prone to be apathetic to actual effort of this nature, and it remained for a foreign-born resident, unable to read or write the English language, who would have known nothing of the movement save for the printing of the circular in Polish, to exert himself to trap nearly 300 rats in spite of the weather and the difficulty of getting at the rodents. 
There is much food for thought here. Immigrants. They get the job done. Second place went to John White of Charlestown, though his 88 rats seemed to pale in comparison to B. Rimkus's 282. Rat Day and the prizes that were handed out made for great headlines, the Women's Municipal League didn't consider the effort to be entirely a success. They had hoped to see much greater numbers of dead rats brought in, and they had hoped to reach a much broader segment of the population. Unfortunately, as the League's 1917 annual report relays, Rat Day was preceded by a prolonged spell of the coldest weather of the winter, with the thermometer registering at zero and below for some four consecutive days, causing the rats to seek their nests and burrows and remain in seclusion until warmer weather came. This condition, together with some misunderstanding that seems to have arisen that the killing was to start instead of end on the 13th, resulted in a very small bag. The report puts the best face on a project that saw only limited success. As the campaign progressed, it was realized that despite the efforts of the federal and municipal health authorities, the people were not sufficiently impressed with the danger to give the support necessary to carry out these extensive yet practical plans. And owing to the impossibility of securing sufficient funds to execute them, they were reluctantly abandoned. Rather than give up the work entirely, however, it was decided to do as much as possible with the funds available, and it was believed that while the actual extermination would be slight, the campaign could be made one of education, which might later stimulate an interest in anti-rat measures. Was their campaign a success? In the end, the evidence speaks for itself. There was never another rat day in Boston. The League would say, Therefore, the campaign was remodeled on the new lines, and while we feel that it was far from being as effective as it might have been had it received proper support, we do believe that a great deal has been done in educating public opinion on the problem, which will result in the passage of rat-proofing legislation and other prophylactic measures against the entrance of bubonic plague into this port. The Royal College of Surgeons judges the League less harshly than they judge themselves. Despite the low number of rats collected, the committee's publicity work had led to additional exposure and advertising by businesses involved in rat control, so the campaign's success was actually much wider. The work was taken over by the Boston Board of Health, and indeed continues to this day. How successful have these efforts been? Is Boston now a rat-free utopia? Well, that Boston Magazine article from last month describes the scene in Boston today. On any given night, thousands of rats are running wild through Greater Boston, gnawing their way into historical brownstones, defecating in popular eateries, and having ungodly amounts of sex in our public parks. Today, the only places in the world that can claim to be rat-free are Antarctica, a few isolated islands, and the Canadian province of Alberta. Last year, Governing Magazine announced that data from the Census Bureau's American Housing Survey indicates that Boston has supplanted New York as America's second rattiest city. 16.9% of Boston households reported rodent sightings, just slightly behind the rattiest city of all. Philadelphia, which was at 18%. Patriots fans can draw their own conclusions from these findings. The Boston Magazine article continues, In 2016, Boston Inspectional Services teamed up with researchers at Harvard and MIT 
and began packing large rat nests with dry ice, which evaporates into carbon dioxide and suffocates the animals. The city tested the method on infestations in overgrown cemeteries and even used it on a massive burrow in the public garden. It was amazingly effective, Christopher says, probably the most humane way to deal with the rodents. But then the federal EPA got wind of what was going on and told the city it was not allowed to use dry ice because it was not an officially registered pesticide. Ultimately, though, controlling rats isn't really about coming up with new ways to kill them. It's about effectively managing the endless stream of trash that flows from our homes and businesses, along with making it difficult for the animals to find warm, safe places to nest. It means that residents shouldn't dump garbage on the sidewalk and that parks departments should know which type of ground cover is hospitable to rats and which isn't. It means that restaurant owners should seal up their dumpsters every night and that landlords should quickly call an exterminator when a tenant complains. Needless to say, these are lofty ambitions for a city where neighbors get in fistfights over parking spaces and absentee landlords abound. Even if we do everything right, the simple fact is that rats are here to stay. Listen, people. Keep the lids on your garbage cans and don't litter. The Boston Women's Municipal League isn't planning to hold another rat day anytime soon, but if they do, I am super competitive and I am totally going to win. But in the meantime, it is up to all of us to fight the good fight. To learn more about the work Boston women did on playgrounds and rat day, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 150. We'll have sources, historic images, and other materials related to both of this week's stories. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the Passionate Foodies History of Chinese Cuisine in Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on a future show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. Or just tell a friend about us. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 